Good morning, church family. It's good to have Daniel back from the Arctic tundra of Texas. Uh, and uh, we're excited. It is OCC Sunday, and I, and I think um, from what I understand from the ladies uh, running the, the booth out there, is we've got somewhere in between eight and 900 boxes that have been given here by our church family. And if you've got a box and you haven't brought it forward yet, let me assure you there will be a moment to do that on the backside of our invitation. Uh, we're going to go ahead and dive straight in. And I realize that this is the beginning of a holiday week. So every child is probably rejoicing because school is off. Parents, you're probably a mix. And those of you who are traveling, depends on if you like road trip and Thanksgiving travel or not. But we come to a passage today. We finally make it through the passage we've slowly been working through. And I'll be honest with you, it is a bit blunt as if you could get more blunt than the last several weeks. So it, it's a little bit of a different change from, from it being Thanksgiving week, but it's where we find ourselves. And I'll, I'll remind all of us, what James has been dealing with is, is the issue of self-centeredness inside of believers and how, how the fact that you and I as human beings, each one of us possesses desires, needs, wants. Those desires can be good. Those desires can be bad. Those desires can be neutral. But in response to all of those things, there is an option of how we go about fulfilling, satisfying that desire. And if you look back with me, we're in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, you can use a pew Bible or if you've got your own Bible, you can see it up on the screens. James chapter 4, he says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He says, why, why is there conflict? Why is there conflict, brother and sister, in your home? Why, church family, could there be conflict amongst us? Why is there, he says, why is there conflicts amongst you believers? Is it not, is it not the source, your pleasures, your desires, which are waging war in your members, meaning inside of you and amongst you? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your pleasures. He breaks this down, having, having in the passage before talked about the fruit of righteousness, the righteousness which should be coming up in our midst, the righteousness which should mark our homes as believers, the righteousness which should mark our lives out in the world as believers, the righteousness which should mark the way that we live. It's, it's sown, it's fostered in peace. But peace, the peace that is necessary for righteousness to foster, to grow in our midst, it cannot happen when there are conflicts. And he says the reason you have conflicts is because you've got these desires that you are going after in a self-centered way. And, and we've already seen, well, what are some of those ways throughout? We've seen that these believers have a tendency to so, show partiality and favoritism. They amen and, and listen well as the word is preached, but they fail to be doers of the word and instead become just hearers of the word. They refuse to serve the poor. They fail to rejoice in the midst of trial. And they allow their tongues to go unchecked and untamed, all as they pursue what they want, what they believe they need, what they believe they have a right to. And this, this desire, self-centeredness, he, he, we looked at last week where it comes from. He says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world, with the system, the beliefs, the values, the way the world operates, it is open hostility, enmity towards God. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And if you'll remember, what we, what we talked about is this. He says, you, you who belong to God, he's writing believers. He's not writing the whole world. He's writing people who have claimed to be saved by grace through faith. He says, you, you, you claim, you advocate that you are sons and daughters of God, that you are part of the church, the bride of Christ, yet you're over here living and acting and seeking to walk in accordance with the values, the morals, the ethics, the systems of this world, and that is outright hostility to God. Not that as a son or daughter of God, if you've been saved by grace, truly saved by grace, you can't all of a sudden cease being a son and daughter and go back to being by nature a child of hostility, Ephesians 2. If you're truly saved, you're saved. But in the fellowship that we should have as those who have been saved, seated at the table of God, sons and daughters of the King, seated in Christ, this fellowship, instead of this fellowship being warm and rich and growing and intimate, it is marked by hostility because we have chosen to desire to love and be loved in line with the world, what the world values, what the world believes. And he says, don't you, don't you remember? Do you think Scripture just, doesn't, just says for no reason that God jealously desires the Spirit He's made to dwell within us? And we remember that not only when we, when we walk according to the world and allow self-centeredness to drive us, not, not only then are we setting ourselves in hostile hostility to God, but we are forgetting the fact that God is a jealous God who desires every part of our being. There is no part of our life that God goes, mm, that's just not really interesting to me. You, you can keep that part and do whatever you want with it. That doesn't exist. God is a jealous God. He desires the whole, the entirety of our being. And with that jealousy comes blunt, convicting words. Comes commands that at times can be challenging. Comes places where we go, wow, this is what I want. This is what the world tells me I deserve. But wow, this contradicts with the king. Here, here is this tension. And all of a sudden, am, am, am I going to follow? Wow, the, the, Lord's, the Lord's got these high standards. Yes. And of course, we ended last week with what he says right after. Do you not think it says to no reason that he's jealous? But he gives a greater grace. That in the midst of our own hostility, there is a greater grace. The same grace which saved us is the same grace which convicts us of our sin. It's the same grace which will restore the fellowship from hostility to the warm and intimate love that it should be. It's the same grace that is greater. It is the same grace that is greater than our weakness. It is the same grace that is able to fill us and empower us to meet and walk in line with the Lord. And who receives this grace? Look what it says with me, church family, verse six. God is opposed, he's an act of opposition to the proud, to the one who thinks more highly of themselves than they ought, to the one who's dependent upon their power alone, but he gives grace to the humble. And we briefly touched last week on what does it mean to be the humble, and really here's, here's what this is. We've spent the last two weeks unpacking a lot of truths with a little bit of application. And today we're gonna flip it on end. And, and I've spent a little bit of time reminding us what some of the truths are because from here on out it is nothing but application. 
What does it mean? What does it look like? How do you and I eliminate self-centeredness from our lives? How do, how do we walk in such a way when it says that God gives grace to the humble, that the humble will be the ones who experience the grace of God, knowingly experience this greater grace that enables us to walk, to love, to know, to follow Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean? What is it gonna look like to walk in that kind of humility? Because God's grace, you cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. There is no amount of work you can ever do to make God go, you've earned it, you've met the mark. If, if, If it was, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is a gift of sheer goodness on behalf of the giver to one who does not deserve. But when you are touched by that grace, you and I can do nothing to earn that grace. But when touched by that grace, that grace doesn't mean we just sit on a log and sing kumbaya. That grace moves to action. So God gives greater grace. Look what it says. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You weren't expecting that on the week of Thanksgiving. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He says, what to do in all of this? Therefore, submit to God. There's essentially five categories of commands. There's actually 10 commands. And by the way, every one of these commands is an aorist imperative, which again, I'll just remind you, that may not mean anything to you, but that is the strongest, most passionate, most urgent way to command someone and call someone to something in the Greek language. It's the kind of thing you do when I took students on a hike and we're almost at the end and and here is a snake that's come out of nowhere sitting on a rock and I've got a a girl who's tired, who's slowing down and she's, she's about to just fall on her knees right by this rock where this snake is coiled up. And I start screaming, go, go, go. That's not a suggestion, go. It's a command with passion, with urgency for her good. Every one of the 10 of these commands are in that vein, but we can break them up into five categories. The first here is submit to God, submit. The idea of submission is is a verb that speaks to active allegiance. It refers, church family, to the, the intentional aligning of oneself under the authority of another. So it's not the idea that someone else has come in more powerful and you just kill over and, and die. It's, it's the idea there is an intentional aligning of I, I belong to this one and I am, I am subordinating myself. I am ready and awaiting the commands of my superior to joyously carry out his will. Practically, it means we place ourselves under his lordship for the intentional purpose of obeying. Let me put it a real simple way. To submit therefore to God means we honor what he says, how he says it, when he says it, because he's the one who said it. 
And our submission is to God. It's not just to some creed. It's not just to some uh, ambiguous entity. It's to God. It's personal in nature. Submission is to God, the one who is holy, holy, holy. Our submission is to God, the one who is love. Our submission is to God, the only one who is good. This submission, far from submitting to an authoritarian despot or, or, or submitting to someone who has no value and care, we're not submitting to some evil high in the sky, we are submitting to God. We submit to God. It means we readily surrender our rights and intentionally honor the authority of who He is and what He says. We submit to who He is and we do what He says, how He says it, when He says it, because it's Him who says it. And understand, church family, that right there already puts us in the most countercultural vein you can get to. We live in a culture that says you deserve this. You have a right to your own. You live your truth. Nobody has authority over you except for those who make up the cultural trends and fads. You can readily submit to them that this is massively countercultural, and it's going to demand, church family, if we do this, that we make sure that our allegiance, our loyalty are to Him alone. There cannot be loyalty to Him and loyalty to the trends and fads of culture. There can't be. This idea of submission is not an idea where I can be half submitted. I'll be 75% submitted to the Word of God, but this 25%, I don't really like it. This 25% I'll submit over here to culture. That is not submission. That's not submission. That is a divided loyalty. It's double-minded. If we're going to submit to God, church family, it means we submit the ideas that we hold and the thoughts that we think to Him. The psalmist says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. It means the thoughts that I choose to think about myself should be in submission to Him. It means overly proud thoughts where I think of myself as more than I ought when I think of myself more than I ought. It means thoughts about myself where I prop myself up and I think I am the one the world revolves around. Those must be submitted to Him. Equally, the thoughts, because some in this room, you may be prone there, some of this room, you're prone to thinking nothing but horrible things about yourself. Well, I'm just lousy, I'm just terrible, I just think I'm no good, and you just are constantly despising the very way you're created. Your mind is filled with all sorts of self-loathing and hate. Those thoughts, too, must be submitted to God because those aren't thoughts God thinks about you. The thoughts we think about ourselves, not just the thoughts, but the ideas we choose to hold. It does not matter what this culture tells you about how to use your time. It only matters about what God says on how to use your time. It does not matter what, I, matter what ideas this culture tells you about how you should pursue and use money. It only matters what God says about how to pursue money. It doesn't matter what this culture says or what you think about various views of, of sexuality. It doesn't matter how many genders a person thinks there are. It doesn't matter who a person wants to sleep with. It doesn't matter all these things. It only matters as a believer who God is and what he said and the order he's established, period. And as a believer, there is no room. There is no room for me if I'm going to be in submission to God. There is no room for me to say, yes, I believe in the God of the Bible, but he got it wrong on a couple things. 
But that is the message of our culture today. And especially for those of you younger in this room, you've grown up in the same world I've grown up in, which is one where the predominant view of, of, of TikTok theologians and Instagram scholars is that it's all relative and we can make a case for whatever we want and we can justify, even though God's, God's rules, his good rules for human sexuality is a man born biologically a man who is a man, a woman born biologically a woman who is a woman, and the only sexual activity is inside the covenant of marriage and anything else outside of that, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, any other category you want to come up with, it is sin because it's outside of God's good order. It doesn't matter how appealing that is. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean be rude to those who disagree. It doesn't mean we run around and act like jerks and thump them over the head with the fattest Bible that can be found. That's ridiculous. But it does mean if we're going to be in submission to God, we have to honor what He says, how He says it, where He says it. We must live it when He says it. Why? Because it's He who says it. He is God, not me. It means we submit our actions to Him, our choices to Him. How many times, having worked with younger people, has it been, I know what God's word says that I shouldn't date a non-believer, but you know what, I'm gonna do it anyways. I know that God's word says we shouldn't live, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna live together anyways. Listen, if we submit to God, then our choices must be in submission to him. How many parents have I watched? I know what God says. I know that God says we should be faithful inside of the local body, man, but, but for the sake of my kid's college resume and their GPA and this and that and the other thing, we're gonna go every time there's an opportunity to hit the extracurriculars and man, really surprised now that they're in college they don't ever want to go to church wonder why if we're going to be in submission to God we submit our thoughts we submit our ideas we submit our actions to him his word his way his place and listen church family that sounds blunt and it is but it's good God never calls us. There is no aspect of submission to the one who alone is good that is bad. Now, it may cost us some pleasure. It may cost us some worldly comfort. It may cost us some ease and convenience in this world. It may push us to have to actually walk by faith and not by sight. But it is good. And that's binding on all of us, whether you are a a child, a student, single, married, median adult, old adult, what I hear today, the other day, there's seniors and there's super seniors now, whatever the terms you want to throw to it. Every one of us, if we are a child of God by grace through faith, every one of us is called to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is only found in submitting to Him. When I was young, there was, there was a certain aspect of my life that was engrossed in, in, in idolatry, and it would have been really easy. In fact, when God pulled me completely and totally out of it, I, a lot of people, wow, you don't have to pull completely out of it. Well, I did. The idolatry in my heart was enough that God knew unless there was a total separation, I wouldn't submit. And so I went through a year where I was, you talk about an outsider as a young person in high school who, who was the uh, homeschooled pastor's kid, who, pastor's kid who did no extracurriculars all in 2003. That is the trifecta of 2000's lame. 
if you were a teenager then. And I cannot tell you with stronger words how good God was in that submission. That year is a defining year of my relationship with God. Submitting to Him is good. And by the way, let me say this kindly, because we live in a day and age where, well, you want me to submit? Give me all the whys. Listen, I'm going to say this carefully. We don't have to know every why something is the way it is to submit to God. God does not have to justify who He is and His commands and His authority to us. We are the created. He is the creator. Now, as we grow, we will come to understand the why. But to go, well, God, I'll submit to that as soon as you show me why I have to. That's not how it works. Submit, therefore, to God. Do you want to know the grace of God? Do you want to walk in humility? It starts with submit, therefore, to God. If you submit, therefore, to God, if you align yourself with who He is, with what He says, with how He says it, with when He says it, because He says it, here's what's going to happen. You're going to face opposition. It says resist the devil, and he will flee for you. Resist the devil. Be in active oppositions. As one, uh, one scholar translated, stand immovable against the attack of the devil. The devil, the one who is behind leading and moving the culture and the systems and the ideas of the world. The one who knows the way you and and me are wired better than ourselves. The one who sees all the bruises on our being and knows the right time and the right place, the opportune moment to hit with that temptation. The devil who, who comes against because if you submit to God, understand the devil is in opposition to God. And if you're a child of God, he's in opposition to you because you belong to God. He'll come against with condemnation. You don't really belong to God. You're hopeless. You're a lousy Christian. God wouldn't help you even if you asked because of fill in the blank. He'll come at you with lies. Ah, God is love. And to say that anything is sin when it makes someone happy, that's unloving. So that's just the crusty old cranky church saying that. He'll come at us with temptation. Oh, but it'll feel so good. It's just one time. He'll come at us and use persecution to scare and to silence. Understand, if you submit to God, far from taking you out of the path of the devil's assault, it's going to put you all the more in it. The devil doesn't need to go mess with people who already don't want to love Jesus. It's those who set to follow whom there is opposition. It'll put you directly in the path. But remember, there's greater grace. There's greater grace. There is grace. Church family, here's the truth we must know. There is grace. It says resist him and he will flee. Well, by the way, if God commands us to resist, it means by his greater grace, it's actually possible to resist. It's possible to resist those attacks of condemnation. It's possible to resist those lies and call them out with the truth. It's possible to say no to that temptation. It's possible to be bold in the face of persecution. It's possible by His grace because it's possible God doesn't give a command that by His power living within us, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, it's not actually possible to do. 
And it says if we resist him by his grace, he will flee. Now here's the reality of fleeing, church family, because sometimes we can get this wrong. What this is not somehow implying when it says this is all of a sudden today you walk out of church, you get in your car, you're driving down Pecan, and you have somebody speed past you and cut you off, and you just feel hacked off, and you want to scream something awful. There's temptation. It's not saying if you go, "Uh uh-uh, by God's grace, I'm not giving in, enemy. What it doesn't mean is instantly the enemy goes, oh, okay, by God's grace, you're saying, no, I'll back off. Could be. But it could be he continues to shoot those missiles. Listen, him fleeing doesn't mean instantly you stand up one time to temptation. The temptation's never going to touch your life again. What it means is his fleeing is God will never allow him to tempt you beyond with anything that's uncommon to humankind. He'll never be allow you to be tempted beyond what you by his grace are able to say no to, 1 Corinthians 10, and that there is a way out in Christ that you and I would be able to endure. That by putting on the armor of God, by anchoring the shoes of the gospel of peace into the battlefield, by crouching behind the shield of faith, by resisting him firm in faith is what 1 Peter 5, talking about the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for a weak, hurting, lame, intimidated, prey to devour. It says resist him how firm in faith. How do we resist him? We do it by raising up that shield of faith and the enemy's missiles may hit over and over and over. Him fleeing doesn't necessarily mean the temptation may subside. What it does mean is no matter how many missiles hit off the shield of faith, if you are resting and abiding in Christ, if you are resisting firm in faith, if you are suited up in the armor of God, you are resting in God's greater grace and it doesn't matter how many arrows, flaming missiles the enemy shoots off, you will not fall. That's what it means he flees, because the enemy can't jack with the Holy Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Just what it means. Well, so why is it that we succumb to temptation? Well, it's not because God and His grace failed. It's because somewhere there was a chink in our faith. Somewhere we dropped the shield. Somewhere we didn't suit up in the armor. Somewhere we didn't depend and rest on His grace. Somewhere we didn't take captive our thoughts. Or maybe somewhere the real reality is there is a temptation we are succumbing to. Let's back up for a second. All these commands are tied together because maybe there is an aspect of the enemy, of his work. Maybe there's a lie that he's deceived culture that we're not actually in opposition to. And that would take us back to submit to God, which means we've got to recognize, is there something that I'm not in submission to? Is there an area? It may be the reason this temptation has a hold on me is because I'm refusing to reckon with what the Lord's truth is. But it says resist. By the way, real simple, we've already said it. How do you resist? You do it firm in faith. You do it firm in faith. Remember, faith isn't wishful, hopeful thinking. Faith is confident resting on that which is true but unseen which is why, what's the first piece of the armor of God? Gird yourself with what? The belt of truth. We rest in truth. We rest in the the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace that has saved us, standing firm in it, proclaiming it. We rest in His righteousness, which He lived out and has given to us, declared over us. We rest in His righteousness, and out of resting, we live out His righteousness. We abide by faith as a shield. We, we put on the helmet. We know our identity in Christ, and we utilize the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, interpreting and applying it correctly. We utilize the sword of the Spirit. This is how we resist. 
Whether you wanna go with the, image of, the imagery of the armor of God, whether you wanna go with resisting firm in faith and make it simple, First Peter, there's a variety of ways scripture describes it, but it's all gonna involve taking captive our thoughts to the obedience of Christ is what 2 Corinthians 10 says. Or let me put it in a James way. Taking captive our thoughts in submission to Christ. We resist the devil and he will flee. Listen, just sign up before we move forward. Church family, one hand it's blunt. On the other hand, realize the hope There's some of us in this room that have struggled with temptation towards certain things for a long time and God's word is saying there is an ability to actually resist the enemy, to resist those lies. There is an ability to live and move and breathe in a 21st century world filled with false teachers and not succumb to false teaching. There is an ability to be tempted with who knows what it is that tempts you and to say no. Hear the hope, church family. Hear the hope. That's why submitting to God is good. We submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee. Listen to what it says next. Draw near to God. If resisting the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and look at the promise. He will draw near to you. By the way, side note, as a child of God, resist the devil and he will flee. As a child of God, resist God and he will be faithful to never flee. It says draw near to God, come near. Now what do we mean by draw near? Do we mean by draw near in terms of God's over here and I'm over here and I need, to, I need to move closer to his presence? Well, no, God is omnipresent. There is no place you can go in all of creation, seen or unseen, where the fullness of God is not there. God is everywhere. Now, even more so, when you become a child of God by grace through faith, when you become a child of God, what does Jesus say to the disciples in the Great Commission? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is a personal aspect of God's presence as a child of God, where it's not just that God is yes here, but God lives within. There is never a time where you are not with God. So what does it mean by draw near? Well, it doesn't mean draw near to his presence as if his presence is nowhere that's there. It means draw near in fellowship and in intimacy in relationship. How do, we, how do we do that? We draw near by meditating on the word, of, the word of God. We draw near by, as was Christ's habit, should be our habit by getting alone. We draw near by persisting in prayer, by serving in ministry, by living on mission, sharing the gospel, by abiding in faith, by walking in the spirit, by faithfully being present to worship corporately, by fellowshipping in the body, in James, by controlling the tongue, by caring for the poor, by seeking and growing in wisdom, by counting trials, all of these things are aspects of drawing near. But understand, church family, it's an active command, meaning this, we will never drift into nearness with God. That's why when we say, okay, grace goes to the humble, well, how do we humble ourselves? Well, we submit to God, we resist the devil, and if we're going to humble ourselves, we're going to draw near to God. It's why if we receive the grace of God, the grace of God doesn't mean, oh, good, God's grace is greater. This is, this is a, really nice, it's a really nice chair. I'm going to sit here and just sing kumbaya and never, no, we have to draw near. There's action that must be taken. We've got to discipline our lives to be in the Word. And listen, we don't do these things to draw near in order to earn a relationship. No, we don't do these things to earn grace. We do these things, and it becomes easier to do these things when we understand we are recipients of grace. 
don't draw near to get a relationship as if I don't have it to earn a re- I've already been given the relationship. I am seated at the table in Christ. God, my Father, is right there. I draw near because of what I've been given. Draw near. Draw near and draw near even when we don't feel Him. You see the beauty of that promise, draw near. Draw near means there's gonna be days where you sit down and you're meditating on the word and you're in prayer and oh, you just feel the presence of God. It's as if you're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's gonna be days, maybe even more so, where you didn't get enough sleep the night before, where it was all you could do to get up 30 minutes before everybody else in the house, where you got this 15 minute window where you're trying to pray and you're fighting sleep and it just feels like God's not there, but you are showing up trying to draw near. You catch what it says? It says, draw near. It says, you as a child of God, be faithful to respond by the grace of God to the call to draw near. And what does God do? Whether you feel him or not, he draws near. So you bank on those days where you sit down to meet with the Lord and it feels like you're, you're chewing sandpaper spiritually. You bank on the fact it doesn't matter what you feel or I feel. It matters that he promises to draw near to those who draw near to him. By the way, that's a corporate promise too means we as a church, being faithful to pray as a church body, having prayer meetings on Monday night, being, being faithful to come together and worship. It means even on the Sundays where it seems like, man, it just seems like all of us just had to drag ourselves in here. It means even as a church, when we don't always fill him, if we will choose as a church to draw near, oh, church family, he is drawing near. Draw near to him. If we're going to walk in humility and know the grace of God, what it's going to mean played out is drawing near. But not only this, look, here we come. Purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's imagery for how you would actually draw near to the temple. You would go through ceremonial uh, washings. It's, it's imagery here. Cleanse your hands. Wash your hands. Well, what are your hands? They're the instruments with which you do action. I don't throw a baseball by thinking about it in my mind. I throw a baseball by picking up a baseball and using my hand to throw it. They're, 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 they're action Cleanse, cleanse that part of you that acts out in sin. It says that, it says purify. Purify your hearts, that place where your will resides. That word for purify can mean to cleanse, to, to wash away the grime, but it also speaks to, it's a word we've seen before, it speaks to the idea of a loyalty. Cleanse your hearts, that place, that center of your being, that place where your will makes decisions on what to do, that core to who you are, cleanse. Decide, be loyal, be pure, you double-minded, double-minded. Am I in? Am I out? I'm straddling the fence. Am I submitted? Am I not? It says, cleanse. And simply put, well, I'll come back to that. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And someone may well say, and you're right, wait a minute, I thought the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and all that. What are we talking about here? Well, if I can summarize what, the, what he's saying here is he's saying this, that for those of us as believers who fall into self-centered sin, it is easy to go, ah, but I showed up to church today. I sang my songs, put in my child's check. I, I even gave three OCC boxes. And at home, you're one of the rudest, most horrible people to live with because you believe your spouse and your children exist to satisfy your desires. 
or at, pick another, pick another example of what you want to fill in. It's easy to act like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's easy to, to just go on. Here's what he's saying. He's saying as believers who all have an ability to fall into self-centered sin, take God serious. Take him serious. Take seriously when there are lapses into sin and not just take him serious, but the call here, all of that is language for repentance, for repentance. When you and I fall into sin, and by the way, you notice the order? It doesn't say clean yourself up and then draw near. It says draw near, draw near. Because you know what's gonna happen as we draw near to God and he draws near to us. The more and more we draw near to his holiness, the more and more we're all gonna go, oh my goodness, look, look at how selfish I am. Look, look, ooh, wow, God just exposed some more sin. And by the way, God's not up there doing that going, yeah, yeah, you, you sorry brat. That's not what God's doing. God is as a loving father. What is he doing? He is refining. He is cleaning. He is seeking our good. And as sin is exposed, we repent. And repentance is simply this, church. And repentance means I acknowledge. I acknowledge I'm walking this way. I have intentionally chosen this path. This path is wrong because it's not in line with you, God, and I am turning away from it to walk on your path, to do what you say, how you say, when you say, because you say it. This is what repentance is. Repentance is not just some nebulous feeling of guilt. Repentance is not regret where you just sit and feel horrible. I can't believe what I've done, and I just am so horrible, and I wallow in self-pity, and Repent is not, oh my goodness, what is everyone else going to think? Repentance is when you recognize, oh my goodness, this is who my God and Father is. This is how he feels about this as sin. And I realize I have willingly chosen to walk in this sin. I'm guilty, I'm, I'm convicted, I'm not condemned. God's not up there hurling insults. But the Holy Spirit is within me, convicting, pointing out that I was in the wrong. And I'm going to acknowledge to God, God, you're right, I'm wrong. Now, the wonderful thing as a child of God is we don't repent in order to be forgiven anew. We've already been forgiven everything we ever have committed or could commit. By the way, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in here. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then understand the call for you today is, is to repent. It's to repent, it's to recognize that, that there you are born by nature a sinner guilty in your sin and that sin has forever separated you from a right relationship with your creator. But Jesus came, God sent his one and only unique son to live the life that you have failed to live, to die the death that you rightly deserve to die to, and, and doing that has satisfied what your sin, the consequences of your sin deserves. But he didn't stay dead, he rose on the third day because only a living God can offer his salvation to you. And he offers that to you today to receive through faith the offer of his grace as you repent and ask him to save you. Now, if you're in this room, as one who this is written to, we're not repenting to be saved, but we're recognizing that here we are, having been saved, seated at God's table. We're meant to be in this loving, intimate fellowship, looking him eye to eye, and we've become enamored and distracted by the rats running along on the floor. Repentance is simply going, God, I'm sorry. You're right. This is wrong. And I turn back to you. 
Because this life is not about kicks and grins and how many things you can laugh and this and that, just a fun, fancy-free, happy-go-lucky. This life is all about Him. And so we must take Him seriously when sin enters the picture. Now, James ties it all together here at the end. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, some have said the whole passage here is really fleshing out what it looks like to humble oneself. What does it look like to humble oneself? How do you humble oneself? How do you see that word humble means to see oneself rightly before the king? How do you humble yourself? Well, you submit, therefore, to God. You resist the devil. You draw near to God. You take God serious and repent of where that sin is. And and here in the context at the very end, the idea of humility so that He may exalt you means you no longer live to satisfy your desires, but you leave the satisfying of your heart's desires to Him. And in humility is one whom the world does not revolve around. Independence, seeing clearly the goodness and worthiness of who He is, seeing the fact that there is a value for me as as an image bearer of God. Yes, there is a value as a son or daughter of the King, but it's not about me. It's about Him, and I need Him. I needed Him to save me. And church family, as a son of God who's walked with the Lord for 30 years, I need Him to enable me to follow Him. And I need Him to finish the work He started. I need Him to return for me. I need Him. This is what it means to humble ourselves. It means depending and expecting Him to meet my needs and not looking to everyone else to meet my needs. It means being content to be weak. It means remembering that He is strong. It means not promoting myself, but serving others, especially those society passes by. It means recognizing our weakness and need for Christ's help and power. It will demand reflection and praise for who He is. I told you last week about this picture my grandfather had in his office where it's this pastor and there's all this sermon notes over here and news over here and phone off the hook and you can just see his hands and it's, the world is overwhelming on him at that moment. And the bottom part of the picture, you see Jesus washing his feet. Well, I didn't tell you about that. Is that there, are, there are moments in ministry, and this is true, all been true all throughout my ministry. There are moments when you just... You just, all of a sudden, all the things add up. You understand what the Lord calls you to as a minister, what He expects of you. You understand what He expects as a husband, as a father. All of a sudden, you get a phone call, this person's died. You get another phone call, this, this student's in the hospital having a suicide attempt. All of a sudden, you turn on the news and you see legislation that could restrict freedom. And, and all in the midst of this, you've got two different sermons to prepare. And, and the proud will either succumb to the overwhelming or we'll go, well, I'm going to get it. I'm going to pull myself up. These moments have happened throughout my ministry multiple times. And the last time it happened, I remembered that picture. And rather than becoming completely overwhelmed and paralyzed, rather than becoming just pull it up, I'm, I'm going to get it, I, I just stopped. I said, Lord, I need you. I'm going to quiet my mind. I still myself before I draw near. Lord, I need you. I understand there's so much you see all that's going on. And I just acknowledge it is far more than what I can handle. And as I began to pray and remember and thank God for who he is, 
God brought that picture to mind, which then obviously brought the passage of Jesus washing the disciples' feet to mind. And when Peter tries to say, no, Lord, I'm not worthy of that, he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. See, church family, there, there's, there's a moment where, and that's not necessarily a sin situation, but the reality is to take the Lord seriously to live in this day, it's overwhelming living in the world we live in. You're going to face real opposition from the world, from peers, from family, from the enemy. You're going to live in a world that tells you to do everything but submit to the Lord and maybe even robs you of things because you choose to submit to the Lord. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming, parents, to think about the world your kids are growing up in and the access they have to things. It's overwhelming. And if we're not careful, we'll either shut down or we'll try to pull our bootstraps up and do it the best we can. And both of those are the way of the proud. There's a greater grace that God delights to give to the humble who will faithfully submit to him, resist the devil, who will draw near to him as, and he draws near to them, who will take him seriously, who repent of sin, who will humble themselves and say, Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. And to the one who humbles themselves, they're not found wanting for the greater grace because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, this is an intense passage. Lord, any one of these things, you could preach a series of sermons on, any one of these things, rub and, rub and push against so much that's in culture. But Lord, James' heart here in writing this isn't to be a killjoy. It's not to cause more trouble on the church but it's that the church would know your peace and your joy, that the church would know your goodness, that the church would know and live out from your greater grace the victory, Jesus, you've already clinched. Lord, that your righteousness would be reaped in a harvest as it's sown in peace. And Lord, for many of us, we feel conflict internally. We face conflict at home. We there's conflict all around. If there's not conflict we're facing, we're overwhelmed by all the conflict around us. Lord, may we understand there is your greater grace, and it comes to the humble. And rather than just going, well, I'm going to humble myself, well, what does that mean? Well, Lord, may we take the concrete things you've given today and humble ourselves, submit to you, resist the devil, draw near, repent, depend fully and totally on you. Lord, we look to you in this time. It's in your name we pray.